I was a journalist for more than 30 years, 16 years in New York at the Wall Street Journal, managing editor of Forbes for almost a decade. Boom, moving to television because that's what I wanted most of all, man. I wanted TV. I wanted an audience. I wanted to meet women and I wanted better tables in restaurants. And so I go to CNBC for three years. They make me an anchor. It's fantastic. I'm so happy. And then they decide, you know, you're just not an anchor. So even though you now have three years of TV experience as an anchor, we're going to we want to cut your salary 35, 40% and, you know, renew your contract. I left, I went to Fox. I was an anchor there and I'm there for three years and I'm loving it. And suddenly I left with 15 minutes notice. So I know a lot about both places and I love both places in many ways. And the thing about television that we have to remember is we can't take it too seriously. It's, it's just kind of squirrel television. It's like the next squirrel, you know, now I was this print guy for years, right? And I prided myself on fact and stat-based opinion. And so I rigorously report and try to get all that information out there. And I had this, this right in the wake of the meltdown, 09, for like six months, my own eight o'clock at night solo anchor show at CNBC. This was my goal. This was why I quit Forbes magazine and did it. And it lasted, you know, six months and then they, and they canceled it and they got higher ratings with porn or whatever. But what <laughs> happens in running with, uh, you know, uh, documentaries about porn, documentaries about pot, yeah. I mean, they ran reruns yeah. and got, they got triple the audience. And I understand the decision. But I was one of the only voices in 09 saying, buy stocks. Our best days are ahead of us. Let's sell the hope. Because investment and capitalism, it's, you know, capitalism is optimism monetized. You invest because you believe good things are happening. Welcome to the Futures Edge podcast. I'm Jim Muriel. As always, the brains behind the operation. Oh, by the way, well, the reason we're laughing, people, is me trying to figure out the technology of this bullshit ahead of time has frustrated everybody involved. So we're going to try to get by that. The Bob Iacchino, executive producer, co-host, and an old friend who I'm very excited about talking to on the show today, uh, Dennis Neal, the host of the What's Bugging Me podcast, which sounds like that should be the name of my podcast. Something is yeah, always good. bugging me. Thank you for coming, Dennis. So let me explain the, the ground rules to you, by the way. If we start to talk about things you don't want to talk about or we ask you questions, whatever, just tell us what you want to talk about. This is as informal as you get, but thank you so much for being here. Yeah, good. It's great to great to see. I'm so glad to join you. You know, you've come on the pod a couple times and you've always had such interesting stuff to say because, you know, people... They see what happens in the stock market, but but you see the people underneath in the in, in kind of in, <laughs> and, and it's so much the people and the emotion, isn't it? And we continually are surprised by what's been going on in the markets. You know, Nasdaq up ten percent this month. Who would have thunk it? Except any optimist out there. And um, I'm, I'm happy to see it. I got to tell you. Well, I mean, I, of course, you, always we're waiting for the next, you know, correction, next crash, and even right. more so. Yeah, and I do, I do worry, and not necessarily the rally in general, but the economic condition, I, I am worried somewhat about. I'm worried that several of the um, auctions of the U.S. selling debt have gone poorly over the last couple months. I'm worried that Bitcoin and gold are going through the roof, which I've owned both of them and have owned them all year and have explained to people um, why I was them. But let's, let's talk about something that I think is very interesting. So on this podcast, we talk about markets. We do deep dives into macro uh, economics, which I love. But also, we talk about um, the general landscape 
of the nonsense and the bullshit that's going on. And on your podcast, I know that you focus a lot on the nonsense and the bullshit, the suppression, the, uh, you know, you and I both work together at that station, which I don't like to mention its name, which um, seemed to want to get rid of everybody who had a different viewpoint. Can you yes. speak to that at all? And they, and they have. And, and in fact, if, could I just cut right into a detail, okay? Think about this. Hell yeah. This morning, above the fold, Wall Street Journal, okay? Above the fold about this big problem with ads on Instagram ran, running next to sexual content. With, when you look at a cheerleader, you end up finding, oh my gosh, uh, you know, you're, you're led to people who follow child porn type of stuff. That's a front page story. And I waited almost an hour and 45 minutes before that became a headline in an interview on CNBC this morning. Now, cut back to the controversy a few days ago over... Oh my gosh, ads for Apple and IBM, et cetera, are running next to Nazi content on Twitter. That became a story that CNBC was flagging like crazy. Every time another advertiser said, yes, we're, we're leaving, six advertisers left, another headline on a company that's privately held, that a stock, there's no stock holding at all. You guys are covering that like crazy. You know, Elon's an anti-Semite, but then today this happens and it turns out, uh, publicly held meta has a platform Instagram that has a problem. And suddenly you're waiting an hour and 15, an hour and 40 minutes into your squawk box to, to get to it. And it was on page one of the journal that morning. Why the difference, except that the media, they hate Elon Musk because his X platform is going to obviate them and make them basically superfluous. One of the things I wanted to bring up, Dennis, I'm glad you brought it up. And just so you guys know, I'll mention the station unless you don't want me to, uh, because I was on there as well. And I was a contributor as one of the Futures Now traders. And my story, Dennis, is very simple. They asked me to cover crude oil on the segment I was going to be on that day. I prepped for crude oil. I don't need much prepping for crude oil. I traded all day. But last second, they turned to me and they said, hey, we're covering copper. It's up 7%. We want you to have a copper trade. I said, well, I'm not trading copper up 7%. They said, well, we need you to have a trade. I said, I don't have a trade. It's up 7%. Either I'm buying it while it's screaming or I'm selling it and I'm going to get smacked in the face by it. Because usually when things go up, they continue to go up. We all know that. And when I went on, they said, you have to have a trade. I said, okay, fine, I'll have a trade. When I went on, they said, I said, uh, it, copper's up 7%. If it falls 6.8%, I might buy it. That was my trade. <laughs> they got so pissed at me. I mean, they the did. producers called me afterwards. And I said, you know what? Why don't you guys not schedule with me anymore? I have a contract with you guys. I will fill in until that contract is up. We're done. I don't, I don't want to do this with you guys because I look like the asshole. If I tell somebody to buy it up 7% or to go ahead and sell it because it's up 7%, which is what they wanted me to do. I'm digressing a little bit. One of the things that bothers me about them, to your point, Dennis, they're the TMZ of financial media, as far as I'm concerned. And I always use the example, the, the late, great Jack Bogle, who you spoke to many times on the show, is uh, create, creator of Vanguard. He's yeah. kind of credited as being the founder of the index fund, right? Yeah. He used to come on all the time and talk about buy and hold, don't try to time the market. And a couple of minutes later, they would put on a show called Fast Money. Right. And I never understood how you could put those two together in one place. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit to your frustration being there sure. uh, when you it were just, trying it, to provide alternative viewpoints? 
a lot of your listeners, you know, man, have no idea who I am. So just to, so they know out there real quick, I was a journalist for more than 30 years, 16 years in New York at the Wall Street Journal, managing editor of Forbes for almost a decade, boom, moving to television because that's what I wanted most of all, man. I wanted TV, I wanted an audience. I wanted to meet women and I wanted better tables in restaurants. And so I go to CNBC for three years. They make me an anchor. It's fantastic. I'm so happy. And then they decide, you know, you're just not an anchor. So even though you now have three years of TV experience as an anchor, we're going to, we want to cut your salary 35, 40% and, you know, renew your contract. I left, I went to Fox. I was an anchor there and I'm there for three years and I'm loving it. And suddenly I left with 15 minutes notice. So I know a lot about both places and I love both places in many ways. And the thing about television that we have to remember is we can't take it too seriously. It's, it's just kind of squirrel television. It's like the next squirrel, you know, and that's what happened with, with your segment and into the next thing. And if they only focused on buy and hold, it'd be the most boring programming ever. And so instead it becomes can a person learn how to adapt to that environment and, 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 and work with it. Now I was this print guy for years, right? And I prided myself on fact and stat based opinion. And so I rigorously report and try to get all that information out there. And I had this, this, right in the wake of the meltdown, 09, for like six months, my own eight o'clock at night solo anchor show at CNBC. This was my goal. This was why I quit Forbes magazine and did it. And it lasted, you know, six months and then they, and they canceled it and they got higher ratings with porn or whatever. But what <laughs> happens in running with, uh, you know, uh, uh, documentaries about porn, documentaries about pot, yeah. I mean, they ran reruns yeah. and got, they got triple the audience. And I understand the decision, but I was one of the only voices in 09 saying buy stocks, our best days are ahead of us. Let's sell the hope because investment and capitalism, it's, you know, capitalism is optimism monetized. You invest because you believe good things are happening. Now, we just saw, and I realize I'm kind of a circuitous answer, Bob, and I'll get right back to your question in a minute. Please keep going. Talk, you're here to talk, yeah. Yeah. So Jim Chanos, hang up the shing. I mean, go out of business. Six billion in 08, down to 200 million on short selling in the longest running bull market of all time. Poor guy. He went short China and was lost money for three years. His ultimate Moby Dick for this Ahab, Jim Chanos, was Tesla, because you make more money over the long run by betting on the upside for rank and file investors, not by betting on doom. So all of that. So I'm selling the hope uh, during that. But I realized you needed controversy. You needed to start a fight in an empty room. And TV requires that. And I had a little too much controversy and too much conflict, maybe. But the thing is, on television, everybody who goes on television is afraid of being wrong. And so when you're afraid of being wrong, you err on the side of caution. Here's an example, Bob. In the last 12 months or 11 months, CNBC has had stories on cracks in the consumer and used that phrase at least six different times, as recently as November 20th. But in Black Friday sales, we just had sales up 7.5% online, 9.8 billion, one of the biggest, the biggest number ever. There are no cracks in this consumer. All of the experts have been wrong. And the thing is, when you're an expert who gets paid to give your financial advice to people, people get really mad at you when they lose money. They don't get as mad at you when you they miss out on an upside opportunity, right? So therefore, the bias on all cable television, cable news, business cable is negative, is scary. It's worried about recession. I mean, I predicted over a year ago, I think in uh, April, July, 2020, you know, there ain't going to be no recession. And there hasn't been. 
Now mm-hmm. there will be eventually. We got to have it eventually, don't we? I mean, it's just yeah. cyclical. How long can we have this inverted yield curve? It's been months and months now. Uh, longest, I'm sure, on record without a recession. It's just that all of those numbers now are totally inflated by COVID and Fed and weird stuff. So maybe the old uh, stats don't apply. What do you guys think? Are we headed for recession finally? I've been saying no for over almost two years. Well, really quick, if I could, I remember when, so I left, I shouldn't say I left because I was never a part of it, but I stopped appearing on that network long before Jimmy. And I remember about eight or nine months after I stopped appearing, Jimmy snarked at me. He goes, I may be right behind you. But I remember one of the times I thought Jimmy's going to leave next. I was actually on with Jimmy. And Jimmy, the only part of this you probably remember is arguing about who was taller. But in that particular uh, little four minute, five minute segment, whatever it was, I was saying something and I heard them say in our ears, Jim, we want to argue this point. To your point about a fight in an empty room. And when they came to Jimmy, he goes, I think Bobby's right. <laughs> they didn't like that at all. <laughs> he didn't like that one bit. Because why would he fight if he agrees with me? We fight because enough. TV, enough. right? <laughs> By the way, I'm taller, just to be clear. But conflict and drama and struggle are these three elements of a great story. You need kind of disagreement. I used to make jokes like that as an anchor all the time. Someone would say, I agree with the other guests. And I said, no, that's that's not allowed. You want to have some kind of contrast, right? Look, there's another thing also, though, going on. One time I'm there at CNBC, I'll just say it. And I'm there with Larry Kedlow, whom I love. He was a mentor of mine. He kind of helped bring me to CNBC. And I'm just there brand new. And the markets are going. It's October 07. You know, suddenly the worst meltdown in decades is is beginning. And everyone's so pessimistic. I'm saying to Larry before we're doing a hit and we've got mics, I'm saying, you know, they're so panicked here. And I got to tell you, I think we're going to be okay. It doesn't have to be the word. You know, we, we, you, you almost talked to, I'm saying that he says, uh, I said, I think it's because they just want to protect people and they're afraid. He said, that's not it. And he writes down because he's on mic. He doesn't want them to see, he just writes liberals, you know, underscore. <laughs> right? They hate Bush. And that, can I, and that can was, I, I you never thought something? there was a political component guiding the coverage. But since I've left the media and been outside of it, it's gotten more slanted. Trump broke them. And they now have, are showing their talents and showing their bias, whereas you, they used to at least try to hide it. And they're more liberal and more shameless shills than I have ever seen before. I was quiet about it for years. I saw it happen. I didn't say a word because I was hoping they would hire me back. I mean, I waited yeah. for the offers to pour in. Nothing happened. It was so weird because I thought I was fantastic on, on air on CNBC and Fox. Nothing came in. And I stayed quiet. But then once I decided I'm, I'm getting this podcast, I'm speaking out about what's bugging me. And, and my former colleagues have gone crazy. And I'm ashamed at what's happened to the media and how slanted they've become. And it's hurt America because we no longer on either side of the aisle have a belief in kind of a, a worked out version of the truth. We now believe everything has a slant to it. And everything does have a slant to it, it seems like. Can I ask you both something, if I could, Jimmy? Sure. I, I want to ask you guys because, and I want to get back to your recession question. I'm sure Jimmy does too, but oh, yeah. you mentioned Larry Kudlow and I, you guys are friends with him. I have been on with him maybe five, six times. I wish it were 500. I love the guy. I love But the I'm guy. not friends with him like you two guys are. Yeah. And one of the funny things is, you know, in terms of being positive, has there ever been anyone more positive about the American 
exceptionalism in American economy than Larry, which kind of, yeah. does, 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 am I wrong about that? Or does that not prove the point he that believes it's left it. versus yeah. right rather than positive versus negative? Yeah, maybe it's pro-America versus, you know, pro-America's flaws, you know, but, but he like drill, baby, drill. I mean, that was the right uh, prescription and that did great things for the economy during the Trump era and then suddenly went to a screeching halt uh, during Biden. He really does believe in America. And, and, I, and that's the thing. I mean, that kind of optimism without being uh, naive, because it's got to be a fact based optimism, but it's such an important ingredient to the entire investing formula, isn't it, Jim? Oh, there's no question. And I think, uh, you know, he and I have argued about, I believe his needle trends toward optimism, which interestingly, that's been right. I mean, America has always recovered from everything that's been thrown at it in our yep. entire lifetime so far. And that's that's interesting to me, and I do appreciate that. I like to think my arrow starts, you know, at zero, which it doesn't. Every trader believes their arrow starts at zero, <laughs> and then, you know, you let the data push it around. But I think I lean more towards uh, optimism, too. I know probably a lot of people listening to this are going, you lead more toward optimism? <laughs> that's bullshit. No, I, I think I do. I just say it in a very nasty way sometimes, and I believe that logic will win out. Um, but as far as Larry goes, remember, Larry was, and a lot of people think of him as a talking head. Larry was an absolute rock star economist when he was yeah. on Wall Street. Like he was, he was the up and comer. He was great and a very, very bright guy. So his optimism has proved to be right. We've had a ton of arguments regarding it. Yeah. I've always seen Larry as the one who I kind of, kind of scoffed at because he always thought the U.S. was going to recover. He always thought the economy, the economy would come back to that. And it actually brings us around to your question about the recession, Dennis, because for me, I don't think it's a matter. Timing a recession has proven extremely difficult. Predicting one has proven extremely easy. And I, I've actually, I think one has to come, as you said, and I think it's inevitable that one comes sooner rather than later. But guess what? As time moves forward, my sooner becomes more right. Because we get closer every time the minutes pass. So it's, it's, it's one of those things that's impossible to be wrong. But I want to throw in, I don't care. One of the things that people and TV specifically obsess over, and Jimmy, you know this because they ask you about it all the time, is, is there going to be a recession? Here's the thing. Stocks move higher once a recession starts. There's an initial dip after the inver inverted yield curve goes positive, and that's the bottom of stocks historically. It hasn't happened every time, but it's happened about 92% of the time. So when a recession happens, hooray from an investor standpoint. Right. You know, it's, it's kind of difficult for people who are losing their jobs, but as an investor, I mean, hooray. Yes. And let's remember that some of the most successful startups of all time have started during recession. I mean, it goes back to HP. OK, I mean, in, in the hardest times, people get laid off and then they suddenly try new things that they might not have tried. So out of bad things, good things can happen. These green shoots. And when I first went to CNBC and everything started falling apart, I was the one voice of the network saying in production meetings, uh, you know, news meetings. Hey, man, wait a minute. And we started talking more about green shoots just to look for that upside. And the weird thing I learned during that crisis, because 0708, when the meltdown looked worse, was the one time in my entire 30 plus years of following business and markets that I was truly, I was afraid sure, for right. what would happen, okay? Because were they gonna blow this? But then I learned this, that when the entire world is in trouble, the money floods to the one place that is the least risky, 
that is the strongest, even in a, a world on fire, and that is the U.S. So the weird thing is that even if we set off a global contagion of market crash or whatever, eventually it ends up accruing to our benefit because the money comes back here because we are the biggest, strongest, most vibrant, most creative economy in the world. Can I bring some negativity back to this discussion <laughs> right now where it belongs? No, I appreciate both of those things. But one thing that Bobby said to me a couple months ago, which I think is playing out perfectly, is that a lot of union contracts were negotiated. A lot of people think they have money. There's a lot of money that's still been injected into the system. I did think, because of Bobby's convincing of me, that the, the holiday season was going to be good and it was going to be somewhat of a last hurrah. There are, I hate to say this, Dennis, because I heard what you said, but there are cracks in consumer, particularly low-end consumer. Just today, I was looking at the statistics for borrowing money from one's 401k. You don't generally do that unless you're feeling stressed out. The statistic about 65% of American households not being prepared for a $2,000. What's the first step? What percentage are borrowing and how much is it up? Borrowing from a... Borrowing from 401k was up like 30% from last year. I don't know what the specific statistics are. Okay, it. that's a concern. It's a, Go it's, ahead. A, it's a concern. Uh, credit card debt, a concern, particularly when it's being financed at ridiculous high rates. The statistic about households not having $2,000 for an expense. These are big deals to me. Like, I think we pushed off this recession far because $7 trillion was injected into the economy in response to code mitigation strategies. And of that, some of it's been taken out. There's still a crap ton that's left out there. Now, the top 25% is who really has that money. But at the restaurant I own, which is a, a wildly successful restaurant, and it was before I, I bought it, except they had problems with uh, cocaine and racehorses and they weren't making money. But once we solved those problems, because those are generally not a good uh, mix for a restaurant. Pretty easy making to solve, too. They're pretty easy to solve, too. Stop doing cocaine and stop buying racehorses. Point being <laughs> is that over the last six weeks, we have seen a marked difference in what people order. And we're in a relatively affluent area. We have a mix, but uh, probably half of the people who come to our restaurant are affluent. And people are making different decisions regarding what to buy. Buying Lower less uh, appetizers, less, um, you know, maybe not a third drink. They also so, have Christmas shopping coming up. You know, okay, yeah, but I'm, I'm comparing that yeah. against against last year's numbers at the same time period. So, yeah. so, you know, okay. so that I think. I think something is changing, and I do think recession towards the end of Q1. And to Bobby's point, it is silly, except for clicks, to be picking a recession. Because sure. you mentioned that stocks do well in a recession, Bobby, and that is because that we have an activist Fed since the 80s that comes in with loads of money. Now, they'll say, oh, no, we're not, we're not coming in with any sort of help. Bullshit. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And I think the Fed will reverse QT, will... Maybe even buy bonds sometime in 2024. You could start cutting by March and then the, mar the market's like that. I got a couple stats for you, though, to add to what you said. Good. I've been wondering when, well, one worry I've had, guys, is that Keynesian economics, which I've already always opposed, the idea that can, government can spend whatever it wants to stimulate the economy. I worried that this is a real life experience since COVID and that Keynesian has been working. That's why we had a, a what, a 4.9% GDP second quarter number. Okay, but, but during that, uh, Two trillion in direct aid that went out for COVID. I did some uh, calculations. It was one point two uh, trillion to businesses, and then eight hundred billion to consumers. Now the eight hundred billion worked out to for a family of four with two earners, two taxpayers in the family. It's eleven thousand five hundred dollars in thirteen months in cash went to that family. That where the median savings in America was fifty one hundred dollars. So you had wow. more than doubling of the median savings in America that went to a family of four and where 40% of households, the Fed said, 
you know, don't have $400 for an emergency. So that money comes in. And obviously now, you know, previously, all of the quantitative easing, I remember when we were covering from the last meltdown and we kept wondering, where's the inflation? Where's the inflation? It's because the money had no velocity, right? It wasn't coming into the economy. It was getting just sucked up by instruments. But now we see consumers, you know, they are spending, they had that tripling really of median income. Because if you're at 5,100 and you get 11,500 on top, it's now at 60. I mean, you've tripled the 5,100. And so that's been going great. At some point, though, that that does kind of have to run out of air, doesn't it? Well, you just to put to your point, too, is they injected that money into the economy to keep demand constant. At the same time, supply chains were completely locked up. So this is this is day one stuff in Econ 101. It's just a relationship between supply and demand. Supply was going down because of that, and they kept demand steady. So th this was no great surprise that inflation was happening. And when they sit back and like, uh, who could have predicted this? That's bullshit. We all could have predicted it. And we screamed it at them from the, the mountaintops. We screamed that at them, explaining in great detail. I know what I wanted to ask you guys. How much of this next thing do you think happened? I'm a manufacturer or a service seller. Man, there's been re resistance to any price or fee increase for years. Now we have the COVID crisis, the, 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 the war in Russia, Ukraine. We have all these facts. We now have an excuse to raise prices beyond what our costs really have gone up. Because while some things have gone up 30%, a lot of the stuff we buy in our particular business isn't up, but that's in the headline. So now let's all come in, raise it more than we actually would have justified to or needed to. But now that we're up there, even if inflation comes down, will we see prices go back down or will they stay there? And now it, it goes, we have a new base. And that is going to hurt growth in the next couple of years, if that's the way it goes. What do you think? So really quick, I was talking to another restaurant owner who happens to be my brother. We talked about him before we, on the recording earlier. <laughs> I was talking to him the other day and he asked me to send him a chart of the Fed funds rate and inflation. And he's kind of an am amateur economist. He's a pretty good one too, but he owns a restaurant, a uh, restaurant, bakery, deli, uh, out sort of near Jimmy's restaurant, but far enough away where they don't compete. But he, um, he said to me the other day that a customer came in and said, all right, so inflation is down when our price is going down. And my brother said, Big they're not. Right? He Good said, difference. they're not going back down. He goes, and he goes, help me explain to these guys why. And my answer was to send him a chart of the actual consumer price index. And Jimmy and I talk about this all the time. It's an index, okay? What people see is the rate of change of that index. Go look at the, the consumer price index going all the way back to however far the St. Louis Fed prints it. I think it goes back to 1960. The only dips are recessions. It never dips. It's straight up all the time. Yeah. Prices are always rising. So the example I like to give is the $30,000 car in 2019, that became $38,000 as we got through the inflation rise in COVID, is now $39,500. Okay. It's still way higher than it was in 2019. Right. But this 3.2% inflation is 3.2% above the COVID inflation. Above right. the supply the chain, price that on top. Right. Yeah. So the raises that people just got, it's still catch up. So I, can I add so something to that too? Yeah, go, Jimmy. Particularly regarding the the uh, the restaurant industry, which is something I know a bit about, is that even if inflation was zero right now, and that's still different than deflation, right? And restaurants aren't going to lower their prices. We've just been through a very scary time where margins were greatly compressed before we had to reluctantly raise our prices. 
we're sure shit not going to uh, lower them and then all of a sudden see another shoe to drop, seeing all the ridiculousness that just happened and could happen again. So yeah. businesses are supposed, the only way that prices could go down, a government could make that happen is get rid of barriers to entry, let there be competition. And if there's ever a period of deflationary where commodity prices come down, so the meat we're buying or the electricity or the, the power to run our restaurants starts to decline, decline um, precipitously, then all of a sudden we can compete on price. It starts with specials probably to bring people back in. But the, independent of those things, cratering, this is never going to happen. We're not lowering our prices. And the last point, Dennis, real quick, just the last point, the last thing my brother said was, everyone that I had to give raises to, to keep, they're not giving me their raises. They're not giving the money back. Right. Yeah. Right. So I would have to lay them off, which he goes, obviously, I gave them raises to keep them, so I'm not laying them yeah. off. For 20 years, when inflation was the ghost that never showed up, I mean, it was boogeyman that just never showed up. Uh, manufacturers and service providers and product makers got really good at finding other ways to be more efficient in the supply line and inventory management just in time. They had all these innovations come in so that instead of raising prices, they still had growth because they resorted to all these other things. I worry that they're learning a bad habit now and consumers are encouraging the bad habit if we let them get away with raising prices as their first resort, instead of going back and cutting staff, you know, making more efficient processes, et cetera. That used to be that they were, so reluctant to raise price at all because they got punished for it. But is it easier now because our mindset is changing? And that's what the Fed always does worry about is that the mindset and expectation of the consumer changes and then we're, we're flopped. Yeah. I mean, and I think expectations have become anchored. I think nobody has said we've raised our price at the restaurant approximately 20 percent. Many other restaurants have raised their prices more than that. And I've done the research on this, too. But there's nobody who says one word about our prices. They understand completely. And and you, you, you I, I come at it from a little bit of a different angle. Like we, yes, I believe everyone plays their part in this saga. People should let it be known that if there's a price that's too high, we won't pay it. But in a competitive market, if I'm charging the right price, then you, then they'll pay it. You know, I mean, I, I guess I don't know what I'm really saying here. If you, you raise prices 20%, how much did your costs go up really? Only like 10% you double that baby? 40. 40. Or just to put it, put it in perspective, Dennis. Your restaurant a, went up 40%? Hell yes, in three years. A cooktop that we bought 10 years ago for $6,000, we needed it to replace it last year. The exact same model number, exact same cooktop was $22,000. So, I mean, the, the notion- shocking. That was, I'll, give you another, I'll give you another example from Go my ahead. brother's place. And I used to have a whole trading card of these. I probably still have them somewhere in this stack of trading cards that I kept with information on them. But <laughs> essentially, my brother told me, he was texting me every couple of weeks during the spike in inflation. He said, chicken just doubled, chicken just tripled. He makes chicken Parmesan in his restaurant. He uses a lot of chicken. He's like yeah. tomatoes, just quadruple. And he finally came to me and says, so a $30, I don't, I, I may not get the specifics right. Jimmy, you would know better. But he said something in effect of a $30 case of chicken is now 110. So when that stayed there though, yeah. yeah, no, that didn't it, stay. It, no, it didn't stay there. Those no. are that's they're linked to commodity prices. It didn't go back to thirty. But it, those things stay. did happen, and this is one of the reasons I'm talking about. There's no way we're lowering prices because we've seen the shock. We were about to put on a um an, an extension to our deck, and that's when lumber prices tripled. 
You know, so, I mean, there's a lot of speculation in this market, particularly when the Fed was injecting shit tons of money into the market and it showed up in commodities. And right. our suppliers, we have to... <laughs> We have to bring charts to them saying, yeah, beef now is off 10%. Can we get it for 3% less? And they may <laughs> say yes. But remember, there's a long chain of prices that nobody wants to budge because everybody was wounded a bit. Right. Can I throw this? And this has become you interviewing us, Dennis, and that's kind of unfair. It's fine, by the way. I want to throw this, I want to throw this in the form of a question. So you're going you're gonna to find my opinion hidden deep inside this question, which yeah. I'm not going to hide it very much. I have a theory and I'm asking you guys if I'm, I'm asking both of you if I'm nuts on this theory. I watched uh, my wife, who I love dearly last night, um, as I'm watching this horrible Bears game, scroll through all the cyber deals that she'd missed during the day while she was busy and buy, 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 buy. Yeah. All these things that she waited for the sale days to buy. She wanted yes. to buy them for months at a time, but she waited for right she now. She actually did wait. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if that's part of the $12.8 billion in online sales that set a record or the 9.4, which I think they upgraded to over $10 billion in Black Friday sales that set a record. I wonder how much of it is like, okay, prices finally have been cut. We need to buy today and then we need to stop again. Right. And if that's the case, that will drive your point, I think. Tell me where I'm crazy about how prices, capitalism and competition have to bring prices down. And to Jimmy's point, if stuff's too expensive, they're just not going to buy it. What, yeah. what do you guys think? Well, 54% well, of all online purchases on Black Friday were done with mobile. And I think that what your wife did, that scrolling, I think... Uh, that kind of shopping is a mobile thing, especially. It's far easier to do. It's far more instant and good for her waiting because it is only by consumers holding back and saying, nope, I'm not going to buy. I'm not going to buy that these other guys will have to eventually give in, you know, and especially once the uh, the largesse of COVID exhausts itself, um, it'll be anti-inflationary. This is another thing that the media get wrong. OK, and I remember this. Um, we always say, oh, my gosh, gas prices are up. It's going to drive inflation. When I was at Forbes, we did research, thorough research on 30 years. And then we followed it. I went to CNBC and we, we copied it there and extended it. And, and never was there a correlation between higher oil prices and higher inflation because the higher oil prices then require spending on this thing that doesn't really help the economy at all. You've got to travel. You've got to have warmth, energy, et cetera. And it's sucking out the money that could be spent on plays on Broadway and jet skis and 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 leisurely purchases that really drive you know uh, a consumerism, you know. And so I agree with what Jimmy that is saying. Jimmy's brought that up a couple of times but on the show. You kind of disagree though, Bobby. Yes, I no. I did disagree, yes. But go ahead, finish your points. No, sorry, Dennis. Yeah. Well, it is true because I, you know, once I had a guy argue against me on this and he said, Yeah, oh, so you're telling me that when the price goes up 30 or 40% for the trucking that delivers most of the food across the US, you're saying that's non-inflationary, it's gonna make, make the food cost more. But again, food is another necessity. And so those two, the problem for Biden is that the, the gas pump in the, in the grocery store are the pulse points that Americans see. They're not seeing you know, stocks and, and, and indexes and other data, those are the two data points. And those data points, they're hurting. And that's why they feel like the economy is so bad, even though we just had 4.9% GDP growth. So can we, we, I think we've done, we've hit a couple of economic things too, but having you on here, I do want to go back to some talk about the media, if that's okay. Yeah. And particularly, particularly Elon Musk, particularly him buying uh, Twitter. If you could put, like, like I, I have this picture of an overview in my mind that's 
pharma companies sponsoring the bullshit, the WEF sponsoring the pharma companies, the pharma companies sponsoring the WEF, and this unholy group of many things that's controlling media. Yeah. You believe you believe there's a deep state that's going to be targeting Elon Musk and that there is already? I believe that there is already. I have a lot of string on this. So full disclosure, I'm writing a book right now awesome. on Elon Musk for HarperCollins. That's awesome. I'm totally surfing on top of the Elon Musk book by Walter Isaacson. Love it. I'm totally <laughs> surfing on top of the freaking Twitter by uh, Ben Mesrich. You know, that's just out because he's a bad man. He's ruined Twitter. So I'm talking to a guy the other day, interviewing him for this book. And he knew Elon when they went to Moscow to look for rockets 20 years ago. And he says, my, actually, my worry is that the, someone might put out a hit on this guy, some foreign mm -hmm. country that doesn't like what he's done with Starling or some deep state thing or some crazy guy that doesn't like what he tweets or something, you know, but the government is out to get Elon and the government has seven different investigations going on with him right now. And I have a couple of things. Can I, can I just give you a couple, a, a real rant here, a couple of things? Okay. Of course. Please. Two million car accidents in this country every year. There was 33 accidents using full service driving of Tesla, but the NHTSA, the National Highway Safety Transportation uh, Agency Administration starts a two-year investigation of the full-service driving system because of 33 accidents at the time. When Why don't you investigate what you might do to reduce 2 million accidents? No, but let's go out for You've got the SEC investigating Elon for allegations that he's using company funds to build a glass house for himself. Well, it's got to be a joke set by Elon with a glass house, right? You know, throwing stones. <laughs> Furthermore, why do you care, SEC? Why don't you let shareholders decide about that? Why is this a matter for you? You've got Elizabeth Warren calling up for the Department of Defense and State Department to investigate Elon for his Starlink management because he refused to turn on the network to allow Ukrainian submarine drones uh, to end up uh, attacking uh, Russian ships that were in harbor. When it turns out, well, no, actually, he was following U.S. law that says that's a sanctioned area. You're not allowed to turn on the star. So they went after him for that. You've got, um, oh, they're going after an old FTC investigation because 10 years ago, Twitter agreed, okay, we'll be more careful with consumer data. And then like three ex-employees complained and said, they're being not careful with consumer data after Tesla. So now they're investigating on a 10-year-old thing. We've got, uh, oh, uh, to, uh, SpaceX gets a million applications per year. One guy with citizenship in Canada and France applies. And he ends up after he's brought on for a second interview online, et cetera. But then it turns out emails show, he answered a bad question about his reasons for wanting to be there and he wasn't very creative. So they pass and they don't fill the job at all. The one guy out of 1 million applications to SpaceX files a complaint with the NLRB, National Labor Relations Board. And now they have a new case against them because you may be discriminating in the hiring of refugees, even though their contracts with NASA says you cannot hire foreigners. So <laughs> the government's coming at him from all sides, messing with him. And I've got a chapter where I talk about that. And you know what Elon's lesson, you know what his approach is? You know what? When you're the highest nail, you get pounded down first. So strap on a helmet. This guy is saying, fluff you, bring it. And he's going to beat him. And I believe in him. And I think government is out to get him. And Joe Biden, one day after the midterm elections, was asked at a press conference, clearly a setup question because of the way it was phrased and what his answer was. And a reporter says, um, 
given Elon Musk taking over Twitter and the presence of foreign investors in the deal. Because, you know, Prince Alaweed, who was investing in dozens of U.S. companies, is one of his, his investors and a sovereign wealth fund. Give me a break. You know, how concerned are you? Should he be investigated? And Biden pauses, says, <laughs> looking at her like, you rascal, you. Well, I'm not saying he did anything wrong. But yes, it should be investigated. And when you are a president, you say, I'm not saying he did anything wrong. You are saying he did. I, I am saying he did something wrong. You know, that, that that's what he did. And so they and if you are an amb ambitious bureaucrat, you saw Biden say that the day after the 2022 midterm victories for the Democrats. If you have any ambition at all, go after Elon Musk. And that's you, what they're all trying to do. Well, how, why do you why are you so convinced he's going to win? How um, what if they do silence him? Then what happens to us? People like us. Okay. I'm convinced he's going to win for several reasons. The biggest reason is because that man has his own strength and self-belief. And he has been pursuing his dreams for more than 20 years with persistence and patience and doggedness and never wavering. He was giving a lecture to a guy I talked to who met him like more than 20 years ago where he said, you know, SpaceX, he said carbon green, you know, electric cars and free speech. Free speech was part of that even that long ago. He spent $44 billion on a platform now worth less than $20 billion because he felt like it was that important. And today it is the only platform that will not bow to government censors. Government is in there at Facebook and every other platform interfering against and in violation of the First Amendment, which the U.S. Supreme Court by next year will take up a case and may rule on that. It's been shameful. So one reason Elon is not going to, to lose is because of his own strength and his own vision. Another reason is because he now owns the most powerful media platform the world has ever seen. The New York Times, which led the way for coverage for everyone else in the world, at most has a reach of 2 million. He has 550 million monthly users, visitors on that platform. And the third and final reason is the guy's incredibly brilliant. He's worth $200 billion. They're not going to be able to crush him no matter how hard they try. I, that's It's just amazing when you talk about it. And I worry quite a bit about this because it's the only place that we can still, you know, question. When you said something about the First Amendment, about freedom of speech, and all these know-it-alls be out there, oh, freedom of speech is a, is a government, and these are, Meta's a private company, bullshit. Meta has, their, their emails prove it. The, the federal government was leaning on them, leaning on Twitter to try to censor things. 51 different intelligence officers signed that thing about the Russian disinformation bullshit about the Hunter Biden laptop. Painful. And it's so funny. I have liberal friends who was like, they're like, well, that, that wouldn't have made a difference anyway. Like, I'm not saying it would have made a difference. They are saying it would have made a difference or could potentially make a difference. Otherwise, they wouldn't have bent over backwards and done whatever sort of somersaults to, to stifle it. Correct. Well, one survey found 16 percent of Democrats said they, they would have changed their vote if they had known about the laptop. And so it's you got a rigged election. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, wow. You, you had a lot there. And, and I had so many good things to say back. And now I've just just forgotten. Blank, all that's what we do at our age. We blank out all the time. I walk into a room all the time. I'm like, what did I come in here for? <laughs> so it's because we have so much important information crowding oh, out so much important right? information. But on the on the Twitter files and on the censorship and all that stuff, you know, government didn't just come in. This is what troubled me about it is. Um, and by the way, it is fine for a privately owned platform like Twitter to say, you know what, we hate conservatives, we're going to censor them. 
The problem is that the FBI led the way. The problem is that Stanford University set up a beard organization, the Election Integrity Project, yeah. and government funneled the requests through there, and they go to these platforms. They were having meetings with them. You know, Laura Loomer is this independent journalist on Twitter who just reported a week or two ago saying, all of the top media company executives met with intelligence officers somewhere in Mexico talking about 2024 election coverage. Where is the media on that? Checking that out. I, I kept wondering, here's the thing, guys. I wrote something like more than 15 columns about the Twitter files revelations for truthdow.news, for Newsmax, a couple for the Wall Street Journal. I wrote more about the Twitter files than the New York Times and the Washington Post entire staffs combined. Why aren't you guys outraged about government censoring voices? And they didn't just censor conservative voices. They said, hey, you see this voice? We like this little account with 100, uh, 100 followers. Play up his message and get him listened to more. Oh, and uh, you know, this joke about Fauci, that is, uh, will lead to vaccine hesitation. So get rid of that joke. I mean, and, and get rid of this valid scientific paper. So they weren't going after terrorists, criminals, people planning riots. They were going after people saying stuff that they didn't like. And government's not allowed to do that. Now, we had a great First Amendment lawyer who's handled almost 300 cases, Tom Julin in Miami. We were on the college paper together. And this guy's handled First Amendment cases for the media all his career. And he says, you're wrong, Dennis. Government has a First Amendment right to go into there to those platforms and saying, hey, man, you're printing bad stuff. We don't want you doing that because government has a right. And I said, no, no, no. Then let government instead put out more speech of its own, put out a platform, get on and open up more accounts that say U.S. government and, and you know, put out more speech. Don't restrain my speech because I, I'm I'll, I'll, go, I'll go so far as still. to say. I, I'll go so far as saying, no, Bobby, it's your question, but I'll go so far as saying okay. there's never been an instance of a government since the year 1100 that was involved in uh, misinformation that wasn't themselves the purveyors of the propaganda. They, they are the pushers of the propaganda. And when they yeah. hired that crazy woman who was singing on YouTube to be the head of the misinformation department, that was the most ridiculous. It was like we were living in a dystopian nightmare. Yeah. And, 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 and what's happened is they're getting away with it now because the media aren't calling them out and saying, what are you doing? What are you saying? And here's where the problem began. About 10 years ago, with the rise of social media, we began hearing this phrase, harmful content. Now, here's my problem with that phrase. First of all, words on a screen, words on a page, images cannot leap off and smack me in the face. They cannot be harmful. I have to decide whether I'm going to let it harm me. I have to decide whether to read it. But once we decide that content can be harmful, well, then we need a safe space. Well, then we have to protect you from this harmful content. How about you let me protect myself by deciding to change a channel and not watch it? So all of this, this fake, phony government intent to protect me is purely aimed at silencing me and muzzling me and silencing the voices that I have a right to hear. And it, as you can tell, it's what's bugging me. <laughs> yeah, it's two things to me. Number one, social media, and I'm stealing a little bit of this from Mike Tyson, but social media has made people way too comfortable to be able to say things without the threat of getting punched in the face. Keyboard and courage. Yeah, <laughs> the keyboard. Yeah, I mean, just to me, that's a thing. And then you get harmed by words because people say words 
but they would yeah. never say if you were in the same room. But but also without... you're letting yourself be harmed, and that makes you a pussy. Okay, if you're letting yourself yeah. be log off, work, jackass, yeah. Right. Yeah. may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. We, we exactly. forgot that. We, that this is where young people are wimpy. They've they've just they're you know they they cringe at the slightest conflict. Man, stand up. And and here's one more thing I, I, I got for you on this is watch for this. There's a fear meme going around everywhere. So FBI agents are called to testify in Congress. And the boss, Ray, says, we can't have them testify. There's been email threats and they're afraid. So we're going to not testify. There's a lot of people giving into, well, they would do it, but there's threats. So they're not going to do it because they're afraid. And it's kind of January 6th insurrection, right? I mean, there's, what are you so afraid of? Stand up courage. It used to be, we stood up, we overcame fear. Now I see officials everywhere canceling things, not doing things because, oh, we've received some threats. So we're afraid. They're not really afraid at all. They want us to think they're afraid because they want us to be afraid of the thing that they're citing. So what do we do, both of you guys? What do we what do we do to to try to right the ship? What's well, the first thing I would say is you have to convince people that when you're talking the way the three of us are are talking, it's not about a Republican party. It's not at all. Because the first thing they do is they say, "You Trumpers, you MAGA, you Republicans." I'm like, slow down. You have no idea who I voted for, who I would vote for. This is, yeah. a, this is an American thing. We used to actually be able to all be Americans and then argue about the details of maybe what that meant or what the better path was, but we still agreed we all were. There was no time in my childhood where you'd have seen American flag torn down and replaced with any flag during any protest. I'm not even right. saying which flags because I don't know if they were both done. They Much may have both been guys survived doing that without taking exactly, it. exactly. Again, so to me, the the first thing you have to and Jim Jimmy does this all the time on social media, and I credit him for this. So he'll say something conservative ish, and someone will always say, "Well, you and Trump and this." He goes, "I didn't mention Republican or Trump at all. I just said this is the right thing yeah. and this is the wrong thing, and we right. can argue that point, but you can't tell me who I voted for or what party I belong to based on that. That right. to me is the biggest point." And and what I would add to all that, I've got this kind of slogan on the on the podcast. What's bugging me? You know, stand up, fight back, be heard. Now, for the less less pushy people, uh, stand up and uh, and and push back and be heard. And so, part of it, though, I think so many of us, the silent majority, so afraid of getting canceled, so afraid of being called racist if we say that Kamala Harris is a bad vice president. She's a terrible vice president, but then that makes you both racist and sexist. So, I mean, 40% of, of Americans in a, in a First Amendment poll taken annually for 20 years, 40% now say they're afraid of speaking up because they might get canceled. 60% don't understand that the First Amendment covers books, movies, poetry, TV shows. They don't even know that. One third of America believes that stopping and preventing hate speech is more important than ensuring free speech. Another third of America, not sure where they stand on that, which means they're weak and they don't understand that we've got to allow the most hateful speech that we dislike so that we can have free speech for the rest of us and never have it taken away. So, but more of us have to stand up and, and start telling our friends and start telling other people and say, wait a minute, you know what? There's another side to that. I think we have to start speaking up and if we get canceled, then so be it. I mean, I, I'm known, I, I'm, I'm not anonymous online. I'm not, you know, hiding my opinions. Neither is a, a Jimmy I there. I mean, I stand up and be heard. You know, Nikki Haley just got in all kinds of trouble for talking about that anonymity thing and that everyone should have to register. So she's right, but she's wrong. She's wrong. Government can't impose that. That does restrain free speech. 
But I think that private platforms should, it's why Elon wants to have uh, verified users who pay because a bot can't have a credit card. And anonymity is an evil on the internet. And people are much more well-behaved if they know they can be held accountable for what they say and what they do, right? Yeah. And so more accountability and more standing up and being heard. Which right. is and I like, I like the way you put it about Nick, right, about Nikki Haley being right and being wrong all at the same time. Like I'm against, clearly I'm against that. I understand where it comes from. And I, I'm going to add something too, but I know we got to let you go sooner. We could have you all day. You said about hate speech. I'm even going to go toward hate crimes. Like I have a brother who's gay. He's been, you know, he's been gay his whole life. I've been his brother, whatever. If someone commits a crime against him because he's gay, the last thing I'm going to give a shit about is what that guy's motivation was. That guy's going to get going to get punished. And I wish the law would think that too. It's almost like giving credit to these hateful, racist, bullshit, anti-Semitic, anti-gay. If you murder someone, you murdered someone. I don't want to give you credit for, and I know that the if it's a hate crime, it's a greater punishment. But even so, I don't want to get into your head. You're just yeah. a piece of shit. Does that make any sense to you at all or not? Really, if I could, it really, what it really does is, is it makes it as if the, the murder of your neighbor for driving on your lawn was somehow not as bad as the, as hate the crime. murder of your black neighbor because you right, don't because like black yeah, neighbor, right, or your white right. neighbor. Because right. it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. They're both but, horrendous. But let's understand that the whole concept of hate crime in America is an oversold story and here's some real data if you look at actual criminal offenses in a country of 340 million people it is 8000 hate crimes per year blacks are most of those they talk about the rise of islamophobia the scourge for too many years the biden administration just declared a new national strategy to combat islamophobia how many attacks on islam uh, muslims last year 158 it's a rate per 100,000 muslims of only fewer than 4 cases per year. Jews have triple that. They have 15 cases per 100,000, 1,122 uh, hate crimes. Now, let's expand the definition of hate crime to hate offenses that aren't criminal. 250,000 a year in a country of 340 million people, in a country of, I think it's 175 million people of color, minorities and immigrants, etc. Okay, 250,000 a year. Turns out 90, I think it's 99% of them or words. Hey, name. Hey, you N-word. Hey, you C-word. It's names. It's who cares? Some guy you don't even know, you know, calls a name. Who can, Now, it's easy for me to say because I'm white. I don't know what that's like. Actually, everybody's, you know, a target. I'm just saying, don't let it hurt you. And I'm saying, I think the whole thing's a little oversold. And the Islamophobia thing is ridiculously oversold. Damn straight. That's it? funny that that attack on the Islamophobic attacks. That's Memorial Day weekend in Chicago. That's not many at all. Yeah. yeah. Well, right. all the pro-Palestinian protests in America. It turns out the Washington Examiner is a guy there I had on the podcast named Gabe Kaminsky. He's this young reporter. He's in one of his first jobs out of school for a few years. Okay, where's the Washington Post and New York Times on this? He's got these protests being the, the biggest protest in all of in history, pro-Palestinian, 300,000 people, Washington, D.C. in early November. And it was funded by these groups that are funded themselves by terrorist sympathizer organizations, by Hamas supporters. And that's who's making this happen. And even the Chinese Communist Party had uh, funding into some of the groups that were sponsoring these protests. This is not just Israel versus Follow the Palestine. money. This is, this is, is, is uh, Iran and Russia and China 
trying to foment to get America, to wipe out America. That this, this is the ultimate goal. And the media aren't seeing it. And the ridiculous liberals are marching, you know, you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And basically, to do that right after the Hamas attacks, can you imagine if anyone, if 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 hundreds of thousands of people marched in the days after 9-11 and did these pro-Palestinian yeah. marches that are just celebrating what, yeah. the attack that just happened? That just, just happened. And it shows you how far we've come in 20 years and how we've really got to put a stop to this. We've got to start standing up and being heard. All right. You want to call it? Yeah. Dennis, thank that you so much for being on. This was, That's tell like people how to find guys. you real quick before we go. On Twitter, at what? At what's your handle? Yeah, on Twitter, at Dennis Neal. It's a K-N-E-A-L-E, guys. And then what's bugging me? And you'll find out it's a lot. Thank you so much. I enjoyed talking to both of you. And I hope, uh, Bob, you'll come on. And Jim, come on again soon on What's Buggy. Absolutely. No doubt about it.